This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. When the Statue of Liberty was dedicated in 1886, it was a dull copper color. The whole statue is covered with a layer of copper metal about the thickness of two pennies. But after about 1900, the physical processes that govern the known universe began to take their toll, and the copper skin oxidized into a greenish patina that can be seen on the statue to this day. When the statue underwent a massive restoration in the 1980s, the head and shoulder were realigned. The point on the crown that had been digging into her arm for a century was shortened. The defects in the internal skeleton were thoroughly addressed. And of course, the weather-beaten exterior was cleaned. But there was no notion that the statue's skin should be returned to the dull copper color she was born with. But if they had shined up Lady Liberty to her original copper color, the people of New York City probably would have reacted like this. I don't like looking at it. This is not someone from New York, as you can probably guess. That's Barbara Clark. Five generations of her family have lived in Stirling, Scotland. My name's Barbara Clark, and I've lived in Stirling all my life, apart from when I was at university. Stirling is also the home of Stirling Castle, a truly marvelous place that I just love to visit that sits atop a giant crag, or hill, overlooking the whole town of Stirling. Some castle has been there since the 12th century and maybe before, but the current buildings date from the 15th and 16th centuries. Well, obviously it's part of our lives. We see it every single day, and as children we played in it. We ran all around it. When we think of medieval castles, we usually picture a grand structure with subdued, dark stone masonry. But when you gaze upon Stirling Castle today from the town below, you will notice that one of the buildings is different from the others. Since 1999, after a long restoration effort, the Great Hall of Stirling Castle has been bright yellow. This bright yellow building, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb. And people were just horrified. I I can remember just thinking, this is a nightmare. The story of how the Great Hall of Stirling Castle came to be painted bright yellow illustrates the unexpected complexity in the art of restoration. It comes down to this question. When you choose to restore something, which moment and time are you restoring it to? Some kind of nameless group of people reached that decision And I don't question their motives, but I question their understanding of the effect that it was going to have on people's feelings towards the the castle. Who made that decision? Oh, oh, I know. It was this guy. My name is Peter Buchanan. I work with Historic Scotland. Uh, My title now is Project Manager. I joined Historic Scotland in 1991 to work on the Stirling Castle Project. Historic Scotland is the government organization charged with educating the public and safeguarding Scotland's historic treasures. They took over the care of Stirling Castle and started the Great Hall restoration in 1991. First, let's get some castle facts straight. The castle, and a lot of people have this fairy tale Disneyland thing in their heads where it's all one huge building with turrets. Most medieval castles were a collection of buildings for certain things. They had a chapel, they had a palace, they would have had kitchens. The Great Hall is one of those key buildings in a castle, and to quote Bill Bryson in his book, At Home, no room has fallen further in history than the hall. Now a place to wipe feet and hang hats, 
Once, it was the most important room in the house. It is a huge gathering space, and the one here at Stirling was also for the Parliament of Scotland. So the kings sat here, they would set laws, they would have banquets and feasts, they would entertain lavishly. And when Peter Buchanan adopted the Great Hall of Stirling, it was in an awful state. So Stirling Castle, up until 1964, was a military garrison. From 1800 to 1964, the castle was owned by the War Office, and they did not treat the castle as a historic artifact to be preserved. Most of the buildings within the castle were used by them. The Great Hall was used as barrack accommodation. Turning the one big fancy room into barracks meant adding floors, altering windows, replacing the ceiling, really changing everything. Once the military left, the place was gutted. And when Peter's team took over in 1991... The building was a shell. Um, It still had a military roof on it, but it was left with a huge question mark as to what we should do with it. The typical mandate of Historic Scotland is to preserve historic places in the state they were found. But the Great Hall of Stirling Castle required some drastic measures. So what state do you restore it to? Do you preference the military period from the 1800s or the medieval and renaissance period? Strategically, the castle had been important for hundreds of years. Stirling's uh, role in the history of Scotland uh, has been central since practically the earliest times of first recorded kings. Castle Hill overlooks a bog on one side and the bridge over the Forth River on the other. So for hundreds of years, it was the place that controlled trade for the whole region. Mary, Queen of Scots, was crowned there. And it was seen that the cultural significance of these things outweighed the significance of the military period. Using this logic, they decided to restore the Great Hall to a state it was about three to 400 years in the past. But that kind of restoration is not simple. First of all, the records aren't all that consistent. We have a series of etchings of the Great Hall. Unfortunately, they all show slightly different things. Traditionally, you have ridge beasts, heraldic beasts, on the top of the Great Hall. These are big stone statues of unicorns and lions that sit on the apex of the roof. All of our etchings show these, but they show different numbers of them. So the etchings, they're great to give a kind of an idea of what the castle might have looked like, but as a a tool for restoration, they, they weren't much use. To help figure out where the ridge beast should be placed on top of the building, they had to figure out the original structure of the roof. Sometime in the 20th century, the roof had been completely replaced by the military, but the original hall had this glorious hammer beam roof. A hammer beam roof is a medieval technique that uses wood beams as a network of cantilevers and trusses on the inside to make the roof strong over such a big wide open room. You can see all the timber when you look up from inside the hall. It's stunning. It's a jigsaw puzzle of beautiful triangles that are amazing to behold. Triangles are the best. Because the ridge beasts weighed three quarters of a ton, they could only be placed where the hammer beam roof was the strongest. This is as true now as it was 300 years ago. We've got a hammer beam roof to construct and we've got no hammer beam roof left. We want to get it right, but we need clues to be able to do that. They found one diagram, a cross-section of the hammer beam roof of the Great Hall from 1719. But since it's the only record, it's hard to know if it's completely accurate. Since there was no other information about what the roof looked like, they began researching the surveyors from 1719 who drew the diagram, and they found that other diagrams they drew of other castles were very accurate. So here's our leap of faith. This is where 
you start to have to use conjecture in your restoration to make value judgments. And we've decided that we will put the whole of the structure back. So this is what we're basing it on. So using that one historic document, they reconstructed the roof, which determined where the heavy stone ridge beasts would be placed on top. One discovery begets another and another, and the original building comes into focus. And that's the detective work of restoration. Careful research, discovery, verification, sometimes conjecture, leaps of faith. It's this beautiful amalgam of history, science, and art. The hammer beam roof was completed in 1999, and everyone who sees it, including the Sterling folk, seem to agree. It looks really great. So far, no controversy. But as we know, the roof was not the only thing to change. So the controversy is coming. The building, when we'd taken it over in 1991, was almost completely grey stone. There was none of the original finishes left. But in one corner, just under the West Bay, there had been a little lean-to shelter built in front of a door. And when we took it away, we found a complete panel of the original lime wash. Lime wash is pure lime, meaning calcium oxide, not the green citrus fruit. And it also contains earth-based pigments. It's a coating that's meant to protect the stone masonry. In the case of Sterling, they found a significant yellow ochre layer of lime wash. The bright yellow was very intentional. Hundreds of years ago, the built world was basically brown. But on this giant hill, there was this great yellow piece of ostentatious bling that signaled for miles that this was a place for a king. And we did huge sample panels of the lime washes all around the building to show people what it might have looked like and what the colours might have been. And we brought a lot of people from the Sterling area to see this as well, because what we were intending to do, based on the analysis and the information we had, was to put the finishes back. And that is exactly what they did, which is why the Great Hall is yellow which did not exactly go over well with the people of Stirling. Strangely, in restoration terms, it's the one element that we had the most evidence for. They actually had physical pieces of the exterior lime wash all over the castle. The hammer beam roof, on the other hand, was based much more on conjecture. But everyone loves the hammer beam roof. <laughs> when Peter's team was putting on the yellow finish, the Great Hall was completely covered in scaffolding and plastic. This may have contributed to the intensity of the reaction from the locals once it was unveiled. Here's Sterling resident Barbara Clark again. The entire hall was shrouded in tarpaulin for about 10 years. And nobody knew really what was going on. We knew there were lots of stonemasons up there, but nobody knew anything about anything else. So when the great unveiling came, it was a total surprise. It just looked so awful. And to this day, I don't like it. When I asked Peter Buchanan what he would have done differently if he had to do it all over again, he says he would do all the same restorations, but he would have been more aggressive about outreach. We could have tried harder. We set up for a couple of weekends down in the centre of Stirling to explain what we were doing. We had lots of groups and lots of people around to see the samples before we went any further. But really getting that message out through the media and getting to people to understand it is very, very difficult. And when it is a change on this scale, I think that possibly uh, a bigger marketing campaign should have gone out there. This was 15 years ago, before Twitter and Facebook made it easier to reach people. Certainly we've learned the experience from the Great Hall as to how we should be getting messages out. If people really understand what you're doing and really 
buy into it from day one, then I think it makes it a lot easier to be accepted. All restorations are unique. I don't think the Statue of Liberty should have been returned to copper when it was restored. As a landmark, people fell in love with it and it gained its significance when it was green. It made sense to keep it that way. But I found being in the bright yellow Great Hall at Stirling Castle really exciting. I'm sympathetic to the fact that the color was shocking to the residents who grew up with it looking completely different, but its brightness brought it to life for me and made me reinterpret my faded and ultimately wrong image of the past. It's now assumed that nearly all the Greek and Roman sculptures that we know and love were painted bright, vibrant colors, even though most of us can only imagine them as white marble. When I see color reconstructions of ancient statues, I think they look ridiculous. But I can't help but feel that I know the Greeks and Romans a little bit better after seeing what they thought looked good. I feel the same about the Renaissance artisans who designed the color schemes inside and outside Stirling Castle. They were mixing colors that really don't match. They were using them in extraordinary ways. They were having great fun and showing an awful lot of wealth and power in the process. But this is probably the first and last such restoration for historic Scotland. New scanning and 3D rendering technology means that you can quote-unquote restore a place and teach people what it looked like at any point in history inside the virtual world of a computer exhibit without doing anything drastic to the actual physical structure at all. And to be honest, I'm much happier with that approach. We can do extraordinary things now through technology that we couldn't have done 15 years ago. And it's a really, really easy way to educate people, to show them what things might have been like without being too heavy-handed to the monument. So I suspect the Great Hall will remain as a unique restoration in historic Scotland's history. Which totally makes sense. But every once in a while... It's nice to be bold and daring like our ancestors were and slap on that bright coat of paint and see just how vivid the world once was. So I spent a whole week in Stirling, and while I was there, my friends Helen Zaltzman and Martin Ostwick came up to visit from London. Helen and Martin work on the great podcast, Answer Me This, together, which is one of my absolute favorites. It's won tons of awards, and it's incredibly popular in the UK. And when we started Radiotopia, I talked with Helen about the idea of her doing a new show specifically for us on whatever she wanted. Helen is a language and etymology fanatic, and she pitched us The Illusionist, which I'm going to describe as 99% Invisible for words, mainly so everyone who listens to this show will understand that if you love 99% Invisible, you'll love The Illusionist. You can find out more and subscribe at theillusionist.org. That's illusionist with an A. But as a little summertime treat, I thought I'd just play for you the latest episode of The Illusionist by Helen Zaltzman. Welcome to The Allusionist, in which I, Helen Zaltzman, swap your cow for five magic linguistic beans. Coming up in the show, word games! To prepare yourself for which, here's a game word. Game, as in the genre of meat, is so-called because it was obtained through the game or sport of hunting. And this history lurks in venison, which evolved from the Latin verb venari, meaning to hunt and came through English through the Old French venison, which meant the meat of a large game animal, usually deer or wild boar, and 
That's the clue as to why the animal is called a deer until the point at which it's being eaten, whereupon it becomes venison. The same with pairings like cow and beef and pig and pork and sheep and mutton. The words for the creatures in their living state are the Anglo-Saxon ones, whereas the meat words originated from French. After the Norman invasion of Britain in 1066, there came a few hundred years in which the aristocracy was speaking French, and they were the ones who could afford to eat the meat. And also, they were usually the ones whose words were being recorded in writing for posterity. So there you go, meat words. On with the show. Gather round, children. Grandma's got a story about how we had to make our own fun on long, boring journeys before we had iPads, or indeed any equipment at all beyond vocabulary. Because who hasn't had to while away hours stuck in a car or on a bus or a train playing word games? Such fun. I spy where you're listing boring things, or the minister's cat where you're listing adjectives, the number plate game where you have to name things that start with the same letters as you can see on the number plate of the car you've been stuck behind in a traffic jam forever, or replacing words in songs with rude words, or the old family favourite, guess how many words you can say before the driver shouts at you to shut up and you have to sit in silence for two hours. Bonus points if you got beyond four. Here's my issue with these games. None of them are actually much fun to play, except for the replacing words in a song with read words game, which is still pretty good. But really, most of these word games are about as fun as filling in a spreadsheet. They do fulfil the function of obliterating an awkward silence without everyone having to think of conversational topics, but the prize isn't so much winning the game as the journey being over so you don't have to play the game anymore. Also, words are all over the place, and on the average day you'll be deploying or taking in many thousands. So how do you take these things, which are ubiquitous, and concoct fun out of them? What are the elements of a top-notch word game? A bit of viciousness, I think, to be honest. That's Leslie Scott, the not-very-vicious-looking founder of Oxford Games. She has created more than 40 games, a lot of which are word-based, such as anagrams, where you compile anagrams at speed, the children's literature game Bookworm, and the bluffing games Flummoxed, Inspiration and Ex Libris. But she's probably best known for a non-word game, the build-a-precarious-tower-out-of-wooden-bricks game Jenga. I actually think a game has to be competitive, otherwise it should be called another, a, a different occupation, if you like. I mean, a different kind of pastime. There are people who completely disagree with me. There, there, are, there are actually companies that are set up to make cooperative games. I can't imagine it. No, I mean, I think, in a funny way, Jenga is the most cooperative game that I know, but it still has an element that somebody loses. A lot of people win it, but there's there's one person that loses, and I think if you don't have that element to it, it becomes a, a, another another pastime. It's not a game, in my opinion. So you need to bring out people's uh, malevolent side. I think so. To, to bring the fun. <laughs> I think so. And the element of jeopardy of the possibility of becoming the worst person in the room. Yes. <laughs> Several of Leslie's games involve bluffing. In Flummoxed, you have to write a definition for a word from a foreign language, and in Ex Libris, the first or last line of a famous book, and in each case, convince the other players that yours is the real one. You don't really have to know anything to play the games, you just have to be a good liar. Which is fun in an etymological sense, because fun originally meant a hoax or a trick, and as a verb, to make a fool of someone. But to gull people is fun fun too. For a little while anyway, because another crucial factor for a good game, according to Leslie, is speed. For me, yes. I love Scrabble until about halfway through the game, and then it just slows down. 
to a point where you're waiting and waiting for people to, they, as they sort of move their little, their seven tiles around endlessly. <laughs> I like. I just get so. I, I just get very bored by Scrabble, if I'm really honest. But it's a very clever game. I mean, there's so many people that love Scrabble that um, clearly that's a personal preference. I mean, before we did Anagram, I would have said that my favourite word game was Boggle, which is pretty fast. Three minutes, Three minutes. no messing. <laughs> pretty decisive whether you want it or not. That's another thing. If you're stoking the competitive spirit, you don't need the additional ugliness of there being no clear indicator of victory. Boggle operates on a pretty straightforward point system, predicated on the quantity of words and the letters they're in. But if you're supposed to be scoring on the word's qualities, those are rather more complex to ascertain. Not many people realise that actually the success of Scrabble, the ultimate word game, is based on the, on the fact that it was designed by a statistician who figured out uh, the scoring system. I mean, it was the first time somebody had sort of had, had a, a word game where you, the score of the letter is um, based on the fact that he, he researched absolutely incredibly thoroughly the numbers of times a, a particular letter is used. I think he scoured the, the New York Times for years or something, counting how many times an E comes up, how many times a, a Z comes up or something. So, so the, hence the numbers of those letters in the stack to start with was based on, on this and then, and then the actual scoring is based on that. And it works. I mean, whether you like the actual play of the game, so it's, it's, we have a mathematician to thank for Scrabble, which I think probably is... probably why it's not fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, Scrabble, but a game where you can triumph just by memorising every two-letter word will never have my affection. Now, I don't want Leslie to think I'm casting aspersions, but words are free, and so are the card games like I Spy and Number Plate. So how does she get people to pay to play games like Flummoxed or Ex Libris, which you could play using books that you already have on your shelves. I mean, sure, you could make yourself a chess set if, if you wanted to. You, I think it's just simply that you open a box and, and you sit down with your group of friends and you don't have to rummage around trying to find books that are suitable, that happen to be sitting on your bookshelf. And flummox, you don't need 112 dictionaries. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. If you've just got a copy of Ex Libras, there isn't all that sort of faffing. <laughs> it's there. You get on with it and play it and... And more importantly with Ex Libris is that the, the plot summaries that we've written are actually quite carefully written. They're not just the back of the, the, the sort of stuff that you get at the back of a book, sometimes to, to lead you down the wrong path, but often so that they're, I don't know, they're names that are mentioned in there so that it doesn't come up as a complete surprise that you're, you're incorporating those names into your first or last lines. That took quite a long time. And because Ex Libris also, because you can play the first or the last line, it does actually sort of limit the um, books that you use. Not all of them have brilliant first and last lines, if you see what I mean, mm. or usable ones. Then, yeah. so you're paying for the curation of exactly the yeah. fun. Actually, curation's a good word. I'll use yeah. that. <laughs> when you've invented your game, you need to name it something that indicates what's involved. The name anagram tells the story. And has a whiff of fun, and hasn't already been nabbed by someone else. As the years have gone on, it's got, it's got more and more difficult to come up with a name for a game that hasn't already been used. It is quite a process, and whether it's a game or not, I mean, the whole process of naming a product, it's, it's actually a part of, the, part of the process that I quite like. People would like to argue it's a science. I'm not sure that it's a, there's a science to it. 
but there is something in it. There is something about it that that I don't know. Words like say Viagra is, was quite a clever word for something that's, that does what it does. It gives the sense of vitality and 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 water flowing, <laughs> as in Niagara. And with games, it's it is tricky because you you do want something snappy, like Jenga. It's um Swahili. It means build. It's the imperative of of the word. It's kajenga is to build. And I gave it a Swahili name because I grew up in East Africa speaking Swahili. I thought if I gave it a name that had no meaning to anybody who didn't speak Swahili, there was a, a there was a chance one day if you said the word Jenga, people would just think of the game that I I just put on the market. But it's lucky the Swahili word for build was quite a short word and easy for people who don't speak Swahili to pronounce. Well, you'd think it would be easy to pronounce. I, I have had people telling me categorically that the, the game is called Yenga. Well, wh- why would you know how your own? <laughs> yeah, game no, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. I did put on the on the market myself originally. Hasbro sort of took it on in the States. They said they loved the game, but they absolutely hated the name. And so we had a little bit of battle on our hands, and I really it was almost a sort of deal breaker. I just said, please, please, because I mean, because they were saying this is going to be difficult enough to sell something that nobody's ever come across anything like this, and then to have a name that's meaningless. They wanted to give it sort of names that would give you some idea of how the game was, what was involved in playing the game, what, like build a stack of blocks yes, game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Snappy little ones, or, or t- tumble down. I think they wanted to call it at one point, or, or tim- timber. And I was going, no, no, please don't do. That. <laughs> it's not going to work. But you stuck to your guns. I did, and what the funny thing is now is that they I think I think they've got very selective memories who all, all talk about how um, you know what a great name it is and how clever they were to have stuck to that name typical yeah presumably the blocks are easy enough to rip off but are the rip off Jenga sets allowed to be called Jenga no no if you come up with a name that is too descriptive and you won't necessarily be able to trademark it there was another side to, to having called it Jenga is I could trademark that name. As a consequence of that, you can't call any old stack of blocks Jenga. Although that doesn't seem to stop people doing it. <laughs> you can't officially. And Hasbro would definitely be down on you like a ton of bricks if you were selling something, calling it like a ton of bricks. I hadn't realised I just said <laughs> Leslie Scott is the founder of Oxford Games, which you can find at oxfordgames.co.uk. I'll be playing Ex Libris with some friends this weekend. I will probably be losing Ex Libris to my friends this weekend, but it'll be fun nonetheless. Before we go our separate ways, your randomly selected word from the dictionary today is... Imagineer. Noun. A person who devises a highly imaginative concept or technology, especially the attractions in Walt Disney theme parks, try using it in an email today. Perhaps to Oxford Dictionaries asking when they started doing product placement. This episode was produced by me, Helen Zaltzman. Thanks to Martin Orstwick for providing music and editorial advice. If you have invented any word games, I would love you to tell me about them. It's been so interesting to hear your responses to the last episode about stepfamily terms. Some of you have come up with some very good suggestions, I think, for alternative terms to step bonus, like the Danes and the Swedes use, or near parent, or someone came up with meta. Meta mother. Pretty cool. 
Anyway, keep in touch at Twitter and Facebook slash Allusionist Show and at theallusionist.org. That's your little taste of The Illusionist. Now go subscribe for yourself and every two weeks your life will be better. That's 99% Invisible for this week. We are Sam Greenspan, Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. We often don't think of winter as a time of growth or creation, but if you think about it, it's the perfect time to create your own website because you're cooped up, you're thinking about being productive, and now Squarespace can help you do it. With Squarespace, you can take your cool ideas, your creative content, your services and goods, and you can turn them into a beautiful website in just a few clicks. This is because their easy-to-use templates are created by world-class designers, and then you have the ability to customize the look and feel and the different settings for your own needs. For example, my site, romanmars.com, I made with Squarespace. The landing page features a close-up of me talking to a microphone, so it has my, you know, my very handsome beard. But if I should ever shave it, I don't have to wait for my web guy to change the photo. I can do it myself, and maybe the next photo will feature my soulful eyes. On one of the pages, I've also picked out some of my favorite episodes of 99% Invisible to share, and the audio is conveniently embedded, even on mobile. Try it yourself. Go to squarespace.com slash invisible for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code invisible to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thanks to MailChimp, the Knight Foundation, and people just like you, we created Radiotopia from PRX, home to The Illusionist and many other fine podcasts. Get to know them all at radiotopia.fm. And if you have a company or project and you want to underwrite us, which is a good idea, I highly recommend it. Email sponsor at radiotopia.fm. You can find this show and like the show on Facebook. We're all on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Spotify. But right now, you can see pictures of a bright yellow castle Really bright yellow castle at 99pi.org. Radio Tokyo.